0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything. The show happens because some of y'all pledge at seven dollars or more per month at our Patreon at patreon.com/sifted. Everybody gets to ask questions. Everybody gets to watch the archive, but we do place a priority on those folks who pledge at that higher tier. And again, they are the reason that this show happens. So if you really like it, maybe consider bumping up your pledge, or at the very least, thanking the people. Who are pledging that extra amount to make sure Ask Shane Anything happens. Let's get to another round of great questions. <laughs> Alright, first up, we have Ask Shane Anything stalwart, Kevin. Why are games being released so close to each other? Like a Dragon, Ace Attorney Trilogy, and Tekken 8 are all being released within a few days of each other. The same goes for Dragon's Dogma 2 and Rise of the Ronin, which are being released the same day. Why are publishers and developers not spacing the games out more? Well, first of all, I think a little bit of this is still, at least just for this quarter, a little bit of the release schedule is still being affected by COVID and the pandemic. We had obviously that like year, year and a half, almost two year period where people weren't really going to work. People were figuring out how to make remote work work and games were delayed. Development was it just, things just didn't go as smoothly as they could have. So I think... This quarter in particular, you're seeing games like, also you didn't mention it, but like Suicide Squad killed the Justice League. That was delayed a couple times. I think what you're seeing is the final sort of gasp of the COVID pandemic. And that's why you still have stuff backloaded. And that's honestly why we had an absolutely incredible year of video game releases in 2023. Now, it's not just that. There are other factors. And I think one thing that maybe people who don't work in the industry, but really love games and are really passionate about games think is that there's this, like, neural network where all the game developers and the publishers, like a slack, where they're all going and they're talking to each other and they're saying, hey, we're thinking about releasing our game here, what do you guys think, what about you, that doesn't happen. Like, the, the publishers, they're not communicating with each other on such a granular level. Now, obviously, they're not stupid, they pay attention to release dates when they're announced, but... Going back to like the most recent episode of Pactor Factor that we just published about secrecy, a lot of publishers don't want other publishers to know what they're doing. And I think what happens is you just have these clumsy accidents where you have a bunch of games clumped together. We talked about this last year with October. There were so many games coming out in October that we, it was like a running joke. We're like, don't announce your game for October. And yet, week after week, publishers would announce their games for October. I also think there's a little bit of hubris with game developers. You work on something for that long, you pour your heart and soul into it. I think a lot of times they think that their games are probably better than they are. In fact, I think most developers think their games are actually better than they are. Hate to say it, but it's kind of true. And I think that they just assume like, I don't care what's releasing next to our game. Our game's better, and our game's going to sell anyway. And that's foolish. It's completely foolish. Call the duh consulting agency, and we'll tell you that it's foolish. Um, so I hear you. These games in particular, I think another thing that they take into consideration is the genre. I'm now in October of last year, There's a bunch of horror games, you know, being scheduled for October because it's Halloween. And you think it makes sense, but people have shown that they'll play horror games no matter what month it is. I don't think that that matters all that much anymore. However... I do think if you have a diverse sort of a uh, slate of genres, it's okay. So for example, um, let's see, you, you mentioned Like a Dragon, Ace Attorney Trilogy, and Tekken Three pretty different games there. Now you might say Ace Attorney and Like a Dragon are kind of the same. They're really not. They're both Japanese games, but that's pretty much where it ends. So those are three entirely different games. For example, like, you know, you have an awesome weekend of games coming up, people. This whole weekend you can play Tekken 8, you can play Like a Dragon, which, by the way, is on Game Pass, so it's free. (laughs) I'm never going to stop saying that. So. I just feel like a lot of times, even if they do look, they say, well, you know, we're a turn-based RPG and a resort sim, and this other thing that's coming out is a fighting game, and we don't see a lot of crossover between those genres. And while there may be adequate crossover, I still think you can rationalize saying, like, it's not going to hurt us that much to release alongside Tekken 8. Now, I would say in Japan, it might make a bigger difference, because game sales there are so low. You really do have... An environment there where the consumers are picking and choosing which games they want to buy and they're not buying as many so in japan maybe it's a bigger deal but here in america or in europe it's really not um those three games are a lot different and then your other example which was uh, rise of the ronin and dragon's dogma 2 now that that does throw up a little bit of a red flag <laughs> because both of those games are very similar they're um they're japanese action rpgs and From two stalwarts in Japan, you would think maybe they communicate a little bit better there. I agree with you. That one does stand out as like a stupid mistake. But another thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that... They schedule this stuff so far out, and there's so many other elements that come into play here. It's like, okay, has it been delayed already? And what's the sentiment around that? Do we need a game in this quarter so that our our stockholders don't sell their stocks because we had a horrible quarter? There's all this stuff that comes into it, particularly when you're talking about like February, March, because that generally, is the end of the fiscal year for most companies. And so a lot of times they're like, we gotta squeeze this game in before the end of the fiscal year so that we hit our numbers and our stock doesn't plummet. So there's so much stuff that goes into release dates. I understand why on the outside, it may seem like these companies are just stupid and they're not talking to each other. And you're right, for the most part, they're not talking to each other, but there's all these other things that affect when a game comes out. Just developing the game, we even talk about that. Maybe there's a last minute stumble where they find a bug that they can't zap in time and they have to delay it for just a couple weeks. Like all that stuff comes into play when you're trying to figure out when the best time is to release your video game. (coughs) All right, our second question for today's episode comes from Zet Saber. A media outlet reaches out to hire you as a VP of whatever is above editor in chief, but they need you to submit a resume. What do you keep on your resume and what do you leave out? So the first thing I need to ask is, is this job just working in the games industry or is this job working as a VP over a content group to create content that's more mainstream and a little more diverse? It makes a huge difference. So I'll start with the one I think you're probably saying and probably the one that most people watching this show are interested in. So say somebody contacts me and they're like, IGN contacts me and they're like, hey, We just lost our VP of content. We're looking for somebody to take that job. We're interested in you. What do I send them? So the first thing I would say is if you work in video content production, you have what's called a reel. And a lot of people watching this probably know what a reel is because they're also creatives. But basically a reel is just a montage of all your work. And you send that along with your resume, and they look at it. And again, this is very specific to very particular creative industries. So first thing is that I have a reel. And if I'm applying for a job at IGN, then my reel is going to be all game-related stuff, unless they want me to handle content over the entire IGN entertainment umbrella. And in that case, then I would start bringing in more of the stuff into my reel and my resume that I did when I was working at Spike and Spike TV and working at Viacom and MTV in a larger context, which a lot of you guys honestly have no understanding of. I know you guys just know me as like the editor in chief at Game Trailers guy or whatever. I was way more than that at Viacom, man. That was literally at the end was probably 40% of my job. Like, uh, it's it's tough, too, because you get pigeonholed. <laughs> like, they see that you worked at, like, all these gaming outlets. It can be hard to get jobs at general entertainment companies because they're like, oh, he's a games guy. He doesn't know anything else. And that's on me to make sure that my resume and my reel reflect the other things that I've done. So it depends on the job, basically. Um, and obviously, when you put your reel together, you want your best stuff, but not just your best stuff. You also want to put things in your reel that show your experience. So, for example, um, I did a series of uh, nomination specials for G4ia, which was G4's big award show back in the day. So I did like a, a series of like five or six, like 30 minute episodes that build up the hype and announce the nominees and everything for the award show. Well, in the course of doing that, I worked with this thing called a shot maker. And a shot maker is like this big truck That has like a towing trailer on the back, and you tow a car. But it also has a boom, like a huge boom, so you can shoot basically while you're driving. A lot of producers have never had experience with stuff like that, so I would include that in my reel. Obvious shots where I was using the shot maker, I would mention it in my resume if that's I felt like that that was something that would be important to that job at IGN or whatever. So, is you want to have your stuff that looks the best. So you know, if you have a shoot where you're working with a DP and it looks great, you want to include some clips of that. If you're pining for a, uh, an editorial job. You want to make sure that you include like all the video reviews that you've done or the video content that you have shepherded out into publication. There's a lot that goes into it. So a lot of it depends on the job. Now, as far as if I were working or trying to get a job with a games outlet, where would I cut it off? So if I'm, if they're hiring me to be like VP or editor in chief, I don't need to go back all the way to my GameSpot days and say, well, when I started, I was a magazine editor, and then I was a features editor, and then I was the platform director for GameCube and GBA. Like. I don't need to go through that stuff. In fact, in a lot of resumes, if I would apply for game jobs, I don't even really include GameSpot because that was like 20 years ago. Is that even relevant anymore? And I think if you see my future positions, you just assume that like, okay, he paid his dues. He was an associate producer at some point. He was probably a PA at some some point. He was an associate editor at some point. Again, as someone who hires people coming up through those ranks, that's how I hire. I assume, okay, if you're the reviews editor, you've already done one of the other jobs because reviews editor is kind of like the next step, at least in my opinion, below being editor-in-chief. So a lot of it is just assuming what they're going to assume, which is kind of funny and a little bit dicey, I think, if you're applying for a job. Um, But generally, I would probably chop off my first website that I started in college, Street Level Gaming. I would chop GameSpot off of my resume and probably start at Tech TV when I first got into television production and started working at a TV network. So I would start there and then build up. And then it's a matter of like, what do you include? So I list those jobs, Tech TV and then G4 and then game trailers. What about those jobs? I started at Game Trailers as just the editor-in-chief and supervising producer, and eventually I got promoted. So it's like, do you mention that I was the editor-in-chief and supervising producer, or do you just mention that you're the VP? This is all a puzzle. You have to figure out why you're looking for jobs. I'm sure all you guys have done this, regardless of what industry you work in, you're going through the same mental gymnastics trying to figure all that stuff out. So I guess that's what I would say if I was looking for a job. Those are kind of the tactics that I would take. I think also trying to work with a recruiter and things like that can help. Uh, but generally, that's kind of how I would go about trying to lock down one of those jobs at another publication. All right, our last question for today's episode comes from El Timbo. I'm bothered by the subgenre name Metroidvania. Super Metroid came out three years before Symphony of the Night. How does Castlevania get an inclusion in the genre name? Am I the only one who finds this odd? Well, I'll say this I have answered hundreds of questions on Ask Shane Anything, and this is the first time anyone's asked this question. So, are you the only one who finds it odd? Probably not, but I would say you're probably in the minority. Um, Here's the thing about Metroidvania is that that term wasn't coined back in the day when Metroid was huge and Castlevania was huge. It was coined years and years later, like probably 15, I don't even know the exact date, but my guess is like 15 years or more after Super Metroid launched, the Metroidvania thing was invented. So, Um, It's not like they were like, oh, they're Super Metroid, and now there's a subgenre called the Metroidvania. It took other franchises to start using that same framework before it was coined as a subgenre in general. So I hear you, Symphony of the Night, which is the first Castlevania that really kind of uses that that, uh, design style, did come after Super Metroid. I get it, but I feel like Symphony of the Night... Did some things within the context of that subgenre that Super Metroid hadn't done and made it better. And I think that's why, generally, people have said, you know what, let's try to give credit to both of those franchises, even though you're right, one of them did come a little bit earlier. So I think that's what's happening there. Obviously, this is one of those things where I'm kind of guessing just based on my experience and my knowledge of the industry and my knowledge of that subgenre and my knowledge of those games. But that's where I think this is coming from. I wouldn't let it bother you, El Timbo. (laughs) It's just this thing that human beings have come up with so that people like you and I can understand what somebody is talking about when they talk about it. Um, I don't think any of the developers of Super Metroid feel like they've been slagged or slighted or anything like that. Um, I don't even think that the Castlevania Symphony of the Night folks are bloated or gloating over it, or I don't think it even matters to them. So. Um, It probably shouldn't matter to you is what I'm getting at. Uh, But I understand what you're trying to say. I mean, there are a lot of cases just in life in general where something is coined with a particular term and then years later, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and people just keep using it anyway. So I think it's just kind of a human nature thing where we just come up with a term everyone understands and accepts so we can all communicate with each other and understand exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) If you're saying to yourself, man, that shot looks different than the rest of the episode. You're not crazy. I had a problem with the webcam, so I had to re-record the outro. But anyway, I just want to say again, thank you to everybody who pledges at that $7 Ask, Chain tier or higher. If you like this show, please consider bumping up your pledge to that level. We're definitely going to keep doing it. Um, although in February, don't forget, we're going down to two episodes a month. However, we still need your questions. Um, so head to sifted.net click that link in the header that takes you to our forums where you can ask me questions like I said we're still doing two episodes a month and you guys asked me just enough questions over the last week to do this episode so we need more so head on over there that would be great we'd really appreciate it thanks again to all our patrons without you guys none of this happens have yourselves a great weekend filled with great games we'll see you on Tuesday for Game Face (laughs)